Welcome to Autumn History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Maria Blackwood. We've got another special episode. We're going to be doing a multi-part episode featuring two conversations. We'll start off speaking with Ian Campbell about his recently published book, Knowledge and the Ends of Empire, Kazakh Intermediaries and Russian Rule on the Steppe. 1731 to 1917. And then we're going to follow up with a conversation between me and Marisha about her own dissertation, which is uh, in the final throes, I guess, of of completion about, uh, again, Central Asia and particularly Kazakhstan um, during the early Soviet period. And I I think we're going to hear a lot about continuity, of course, between the Russian Empire uh, and the Soviet period, but also hopefully talk about some significant changes that occur, some political shifts that occur in the relationship uh, between sort of a, a central imperial state uh, and this what, what, what was really a frontier region of the Russian Empire during the 19th century. Yeah, I've had the privilege of um, observing Ian's work evolve uh, from the dissertation stage uh, through the book, and it's been very useful to me as a complement to my own work. Um, And I think it'll be uh, exciting to talk about some of the the commonalities and the differences we observe. Well, we won't uh, delay any further. Uh, Here is Marisha's interview with Ian Campbell about his new book. You won't hear me in that episode, but don't worry, listeners, I'll be back for a subsequent follow-up conversation with Marisha on her own research about Soviet Central Asia. Stay tuned. I'm speaking today with Ian Campbell. Ian is Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Davis, and he received his PhD in history from the University of Michigan in 2011. His work focuses on Russian imperialism in Central Asia before 1917, using the lens of knowledge production to address problems ranging from environmental history to state violence. His first monograph, Knowledge and the Ends of Empire, Kazakh Intermediaries and Russian Rule on the Steppe, 1731 to 1917, was recently published by Cornell University Press. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me, Marisha. So to start us off, I was hoping you could, uh, for the sake of our audience, many of whom are probably not intimately familiar uh, with Central Asia, um, I was hoping that you could situate the Kazakh steppe both geographically and also historically in terms of its relationship to the Russian Empire. All right. Um, Well, I present this um, in a few different ways for different audiences, so I might try to talk about it geographically in a couple of different ways. Um, At the most basic level, I sometimes tell people, you know, um, you know that big empty space in your mental imaginary between China, Afghanistan, um, Iran, and Russia? That's the Kazakh step. Um, but, you know, we're probably going to want to specify a little more than that. So what we're talking about here geographically um, is this uh, very large region, um, kind of just north of, you know, the kind of the sedentary oases of Turkestan. Um, it's bounded um, roughly in the east by the Tianshan Mountains, in the west by the Caspian Sea, Um in the south, um, this is somewhat controversial, um, but, you know, call it the Sirdaria River. That would work well enough. Um, and in the north, roughly, you know, the lines of the, uh, the Irtish um, and the Ural River um, with one another. Um, and within that, then, you have um, some significant, well, you have some ge- um, kind of geographical climactic 
variation um, towards those rivers in the north, the Irtysh, the Ural. Um, it's something closer to what um, the Russians call forest steppe. There's a little more tree cover, um, slightly more humus content um, in the topsoil, a little more um, surface water. Um, as you move more to the south, it becomes really more of you know, a classic grassland, something a little bit akin to uh, the American Great Plains. Um, an extremely continental climate, um, so very little precipitation, not much surface water, um, very, very cold winters, very, very hot, dry summers. Um, it's a place where there's not a lot of soil cover. It's the greatest place in the world to grow feather grass. Um, whether you can grow um, things other than feather grass there is actually one of the controversies at the center of my book because Russians, well, Tsarist officials and uh, Kazakhs um, tend to have some different views about this. And, and, and you, since you asked historically as well, um, the conventional date and the one that I use because conventions are helpful when you're writing um, for the incorporation of the uh, Kazakh step into the Russian Empire is 1731. Um, now, in any number of ways, this is a fiction. Um, it's not clear that the Kazakhs thought they were becoming subjects of the Russian Empire um, in 1731. Um, you know, it's part of kind of a seeking of alliance that, you know, could just as easily be um, taken back later on. It's only one group of Cossacks that does this in 1731. Um, the basic idea, though, is, you know, prior to the 1730s, there are these various struggles for supremacy on the Kazakh steppe, broadly considered. Some Kazakhs start looking to the Russian Empire um, as an ally within these struggles, not thinking necessarily that uh, this is a long-term arrangement, um, you know, as in the work of Michael Khodorkovsky shows us this pretty well. Um, Tsarist officials have some other ideas about what this means, um, and they try for something close to a century to actually get a handle on what's going on um, um, with these unruly, so they think, new subjects. Um, they try to build, you know, frontier lines, um, kind of in between the Kazakhs and people who Kazakhs, you know, um, are having problems with. Um, these lines get raided. They try to pick... Hans, who they think can I actually project their authority, this doesn't necessarily work um, all that well in every case either. Um, in the 1820s, you start to see a slightly more aggressive, more uh, bureaucratic approach. Um, you know, they they um, abolish the opposition of Khan. You start to see more Russian bureaucrats um, interacting with Kazakhs. You start to see Russian um, you know, administrative bureaus inside the steppe. So now it's in. Now it's still a frontier province, but it's um, a little more. Um, um, there's a slightly more interventionist approach. Um, this is one of the, I think, the two big turning points in Kazakh history under Russian rule. The other big one comes with um, the conquest of some of the oasis cities of Turkestan in 1865, 66. Um, this uh, makes of the Kazakh steppe suddenly an internal province of the Russian Empire. It's no longer the frontier. 
And this is kind of a convenient moment to start thinking about a change of heart in among Russian officials as well. They start to see this as something internal, something where we need to start thinking more seriously about how this might become a part of the empire. And that's a dynamic uh, you explore uh, very in a very interesting manner in your own work. Um, but before we delve into that, I was thinking for the sake of our audience um, who might not be as familiar as uh, we are with um, Russian imperial historiography uh, and with the Russian Empire as kind of a subject of historical study. Um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about the Russian Empire in comparative perspective. So your work is not explicitly comparative, uh, but it is very much informed by historiographies dealing with other imperial states. Um, So if you could tell us a little bit about the Russian Empire. So, yeah, I have a perspective on this that I don't think is necessarily unique, but it's also, I think, not universally accepted yet. I think that by the late, certainly by the late 19th century, um, you know, European empires are a genus. The Russian Empire is one species of them. Um, There is kind of a tension on the Kazakh steppe between um, a seeming desire to uh, have um, what are called the Inarodzi, you know, non-Russians, merge with the dominant nationality group, but really no concrete agreement on, like, what timeline that might occur on, what it would mean to merge. Um, The Russian Empire, um, I think it stands out a little bit because of the tremendous administrative um, diversity on its different borderlands. Um, there's, you know, one, one scholar refers to it as an empire of special deals. Um, so, which is to say that kind of the particular historical circumstances, the particular geographical circumstances of some regions incorporation might result in rather different administrative outcomes. Um, so that strikes me as uh, different and worth noting to a degree. But ultimately, you know, like a lot of European empires, there is a tension between the otherness of people who are not part of the dominant group and a desire that, you know, at some point, or an idea that at some point they're going to merge. Um, There is a regime of legal difference, and I would argue uh, legal discrimination um, against members um, who are against people who are not in the dominant nationality group. And, okay, I should say, just as an aside, that, like, the kind of ruling clique of the Russian Empire is, like, in a limited sense, multi-ethnic, right? Okay, so, like, they're Russians, but also, ethnic Russians, but also there are Germans, um, Georgians, Armenians, a little bit. And uh, this is sometimes put forth as an example of, you know, why the Russian Empire is a little bit different, right? Because there's not just a single ethnic, you know, ruling group. But, you know, I think the Scots who uh, were serving in uh, the Raj administration in India would dispute that, you know, Russia is unique in this way. So yeah, the point is there is this kind of legally discriminatory regime um, in the area that we study, the Kazakh steppe. Um, after the 1890s, this legally discriminatory regime enables the settlement of more than a million Slavs onto uh, the grasslands of the Kazakh steppe um, and in smaller numbers to Turkestan. Um, 
So the point is basically, you know, I do see more similarities than differences. I guess some of this is a question of which lens you use. The Russian Empire, broadly considered, looks a lot like any other colonial empire of the late 19th century, a little more administratively underpowered, I think, um, and with some particularities that come with this kind of cobbled-together nature of the thing. But, you know, everything has specificity when you look at it, you know, in a very fine-grained perspective. I want to see the commonalities instead. I want to be able to use the historiography, especially of the British and French empires, um, you know, not... I hope not simple-mindedly, but, you know, because this can help us understand some things where we maybe don't have the empirical knowledge of them in the case of the steppe or in the case of Turkestan yet. So thinking about those specificities, mm-hmm. um, what kind of challenges would you say that the Russian Empire faced in the Kazakh steppe in uh, administering this uh, borderland that then became a more kind of interior part of the empire. I mean, I'd also say in some sense, these um, challenges that some of the challenges they face are just a specific case of challenges that the Russian empire faces everywhere, like even in kind of these, uh, you know, gluchiamista of the countryside, right? Um, it's vastly underpowered. Um, some of the things that officials aspire to do, um, and this is, of course, very much the, a theme of my book, some of the things that officials aspire to do, they don't actually dispose of any useful information about whether or not this would be a good idea. And they're quite a few, and they're quite a lot of money and quite a lot of time and quite a lot of dudes, for lack of a better word, from being able to do this. And this is a problem of the Kazakh step the same way it is of, say, like the post-emancipation commune. Um, with that being said, um, there are there are some specific things. Um, it, you know, the lens of my book is knowledge production and um, the kind of opportunities it creates for non-Russians to talk about um, Tsarist rule. Um, and in this case, I would say that there are some particularly high conceptual hurdles for Tsarist administrators to get over. Um, they have this kind of sedentarist metaphysic, to use the kind of $20 term, um, about the way societies ought to work. Um, so, for example, they don't really have the ability to grasp that how nomads think about holding on to land. Um, They don't fully understand that, you know, one thing isn't just interchangeable. One piece of land isn't totally interchangeable for another just because, you know, in their mind, these guys are wandering all over anyway. So what's really the difference? Um, they, They can't get to grips to this. You know, the Russians, the Russian Empire has ruled Muslims, you know, for several centuries by the time they get to the Kazakh steppe. Um, and we know now, you know, from the work of uh, Alan Frank, Pavel Shable, and a few others, you know, how deep the Islamic transformation of the Kazakh steppe had really uh, proceeded by the time, um, you know, Tsarist rule takes root there. And yet these don't look totally like Muslims to them either. They... Um, you know, they move around. They maybe don't have like a fixed place of worship. They're not always fulfilling all the rites. They don't behave like like a Kazan Tatar Muslim would. And so they can't 
necessarily take this seriously. Um, and so this, this is, too, um, a kind of a major conceptual hurdle. Um, I'd say the, the last kind of significant conceptual hurdle to get over um, has to do with questions of environment, right? Agronomy. Um, you know, there's a real tension. And so, to, to do them justice, some SARS administrators do... Um, there's some real debate about this, so to say. Um, there's a real tension between a kind of geographical determinism in the way Tsarist administrators and Tsarist scholars think about the steppe. You know, there's not a lot of precipitation. There's not a lot of, you know, good topsoil. We should probably let these people continue to do um, uh, pastoral nomadism. Um, but, you know, then there's... There's kind of, you know, Promethean's not exactly the right word, but there is at least a sense among some that, um, in fact, we're not totally limited by the environment. And this comes with a degree of wistful thinking, because the Russian Empire, like most states in human history, doesn't love having nomads as subjects. You can't tax them. They're hard to count. They cross the uh, the boundaries that you've carefully driven, dri- blah drawn on the map so there's a kind of wishful thinking like you know if we could get these at least for some ministers if we could get these kazakh pastoral nomads to settle on the land one way or the other either keep less livestock so they can stay in one place or grow grain because maybe the environment is changeable it would make our kind of task of introducing civil order to what's now an internal province just much easier. And those are issues that continue to be very salient for Mm -hmm. uh, the Soviet government as well, well into the 20th century. This is something you've already alluded to, um, but your work illuminates the interplay between various kinds of actors in an imperial context, uh, specifically in in the Kazakh steppe. And you focus on two groups, broadly defined, uh, imperial officials and the Kazakh intermediaries who were their interlocutors Mm -hmm. in the steppe. Can you tell us more about these people and how they related to each other? So, um, I mean, I think you could take this question a lot of ways, right? Um, um, I don't necessarily always possess fantastic um, uh, documentary evidence of, you know, how these relationships actually formed. Um, There's one case that I do, and I made an entire chapter out of it, which I think we'll talk about in a minute. I mean, generally speaking, um, the Kazakhs who I'm talking about here are, well, I mean, they're, they're your early figures, kind of somebody like Chokhan Valikhanov, um, who's really, you know, interested in a Tsarist education. It has as much to do with preserving the social status his family has. Um, Can you um, tell us a little bit more about that? Because he has a, a very interesting background that might be... Uh, okay, so like... Even before the steppe becomes an internal province, you know, there are these kind of, you know, major cities of Orenburg and Omsk, and uh, both of these hold, you know, schools, you know, to train up the kind of officerial elite of um, the Russian Empire. And so in this early generation, you get some Kazakhs, um, you know, Kazakh nobles' children who are actually interested in enrolling in these schools um, because, you know, there's a kind of a neat analog here to, uh, you know, the kind of social status that they enjoyed on the step. And it seems like a neat way of like um, grabbing onto social capital in a new context. So 
probably the most famous Russophone Cossack of the 19th century, Chokhan Valikhanov, um, is one of these. And he's actually, and he's a Chingasid. Um, you know, he has this kind of very distinguished ancestry. And like, this is a kind of a means of adaptation um, to a new context. Um, but, you know, prior to, uh, Prior to 1868, prior to the provisional statute, you know, once the step is in internal province, there are not a lot of Kazakhs going to these schools. Um, the provisional statute, you know, it creates the framework and it creates some funding for a network of uh, lower level schools, first at the district level, then um, at the cantonal level as well. And these, you know, the products of these schools are increasingly, you know, not necessarily children of elites, um, and they look kind of like your bog standard intermediaries in most European empires. The schools exist because the Russian Empire would like to have translators and scribes that it feels that it can trust. Um, they would like you know, to have at lower levels of administration, you know, in these elected posts, ideally they think, you know, who, who will be elected, but people who maybe know a tiny bit of Russian and got at least a tiny bit of an idea of what we're about, you know, even if it was just a year or two in school. Um, and, you know, there's there's an incentive for Cossacks to do this as well. There's a means of, you know, accruing some form of new social or cultural capital in um, circumstances that now seem very different and are likely to remain so. Um, and, you know, and again, this is, you know, a fairly well-told story in um, the context of other colonial empires. You know, they go to these schools and they learn Russian, they work in administration, um, but they also find the language to uh, speak back to their, to, um, to their tsarist interlocutors. Sometimes, like it, it gives them, it gives them the key to this environment, and it gives them some tools to function inside it. Can you uh, talk a bit more about that dynamic, um, about the types of goals these Kazakhs pursued, how they pursued them, to what extent they were successful in their engagement with the tsarist state? All right. I mean, well, I mean, there there are a lot of goals, of course, and you know. Some of them are not things I talk about in my book so much, but I see them in the archive. They're, you know, kind of much more basic careerist goals or things that, you know, might help, you know, their own sort of family network. Um, looking kind of at the bigger picture, looking at uh, matters of policy, um, you know, I, I, I found a couple of um, frequent themes. I found... You know, a lot of Cossacks, not all of them, so like not Alakan Bukhakhanov, for example, um, a lot of Cossacks, you know, really willing to make the argument like, look, you're getting this wrong. You're getting the religion issue wrong. Like, we're actually Muslims. Um, and for people who uh, are not familiar with uh, the historiography of the region, this is a very common trope, right? Yeah. Um, that continues in uh, some scholarship even to this day, that the Kazakhs were, quote, not really that Muslim. Yeah, it, it, it runs all the way back, you know, at least to the 1830s. Um, you know, Bruno Latour would be very proud, right? Like, there's this one key text People start citing it. Pretty soon, people start citing the stuff that cites it, and uh, it becomes hegemonic without um, really 
a lot of deeper thought. And so this is one thing that, you know, Kazakhs are, you know, Alton Sarin is, um, Ibrahim Alton Sarin, who we'll talk about in a few minutes, I know is a great example of this, um, you know, that you are, you need to actually reckon with like the fact of Kazakh religiosity. Um, this doesn't mean we don't want to be subjects of the empire necessarily, but you need to at least understand that we're going to be Muslim subjects of the empire. Um, um, the thing that struck me a lot, though, as I was reading, um, you know, the you know kind of the works of Kazakh intellectuals, as I followed them into the archives, as I looked at um, these kind of official bilingual newspapers that emerge, um, is that it ha- it it has a lot to do frequently with the environment of the steppe and its potentials, um, an issue that I've already pointed to. Um, I didn't expect to be an environmental historian when I started this project, and uh, by the time I finished, I maybe was one a little bit. Um, Yeah, so there is, again, this question, um, you know, can you really, you know, should Kazakhs settle on the land? Um, And a lot of them at least agree that they would like to have some degree of sedentarization. Um, can you sow grain if you're settling? Um, or should we, you know, just keep fewer and better livestock? Um, you know, Kazakhs, you know, Kazakhs seem fairly evenly divided about this. Some of them are very interested in the potentials of agriculture. Others are saying, no, I think, you know, we really need to kind of modernize is a bad word, but it's kind of all over this. You know, we need to modernize, intensify the kind of stock raising that we already do because that's the environment that there is here. And this is already kind of what we know. Um, But also what comes with this is a question of who's to be the agent of all this. Um, And as there starts to be some discussion um, in Western Siberia already in the 1870s um, of – Russian settlers or Slavic settlers, I guess, because a lot of them are actually Ukrainian, um, um, as a kind of civilizing force on the step. This is where, you know, the Kazakh intermediaries begin saying, look, this is really not a very good idea. Um, uh, you know, we would like to have resources from the Tsarist government. We would like, um, we would like education, uh, but we, you know, we can learn this stuff. We don't need settlers next door taking our land and kind of by osmosis maybe teaching us how to do this. Um, and for a long time, this um, is a, for a lot of ways, for a lot of reasons, actually a fairly effective argument, this complex of arguments. Um, one, there's some real doubt, you know, as I mentioned in the Tsarist administration about the kind of environmental potentialities of all this. Um, Two, there's distrust of peasant mobility at multiple levels. Um, You know, the Tsarist state, you know, post-emancipation, not known for its love of peasants moving around. Um, And local administrators who have sometimes much less rosy ideas of the civilizing capacity of the Slavic peasant. They say, look, you know, these, you know, these folks who, these Kazakhs who we rule, you know, they seem to know their business reasonably well, and you know you're not going to foist off a bunch of uh, you know drunk and feckless peasants um, from Central Russia on me. They're, these are these people are not going to be my problem. Um, 
I mean, I mean, the, the, the shift, and this is really, I think, the last key turning point in the book, there, there's a shift um, both epistemically and in policy um, in the early to mid-1890s. Um, one, as uh, under um, Sergei Vita, um, railroads kind of, and railroads, railroad colonization, the more um, efficient use of uh, the Russian Empire's productive forces, as this becomes like first on the, you know, high on the agenda of uh, the Russian Empire's economic modernization, there are certainly some very powerful voices um, thinking that resettlement is a pretty good idea. Um, And the step, which again, doesn't look to have a lot in, in the kind of Russian, sorry, pardon me, imaginary, doesn't look to have a lot of people who are firmly attached to property and looks kind of big and empty, um, to put it in the bluntest terms, seems like a really good place to do a lot of this. Um, and this comes with an epistemic shift um, in the form of uh, you know, statistical expeditions um, that follow on actually the practices that were used um, in uh, allotting land in the post-emancipation commune. And what these statistical expeditions do are to go and study in a very abstract fashion um, Kazakh households. They try to figure out, I kind of love this, um, you know, how many horse units um, a typical Kazakh household has, um, and they compute its uh, its loshadnost, um, its its hoarseness, I guess. Um, and from this, they can say, okay, and so uh, a typical house in Region X has eighteen horse units. Um, pastures in Region X are of quality one, two, three, or four. Um, a horse unit needs so many disyatinas. That's two point seven acres of pasture quality three to live for a year so is multiple- a horse unit an actual horse or is it some- no it's a horse unit it's a horse unit um so it's basically not one horse okay so <laughs> so one horse is one horse unit uh-huh. um but basically they're thinking about all of this in terms of how much grass they mm-hmm. eat, right so like a camel is two horse units because a camel eats twice as much fodder as a horse a goat is like 0.05 horse units as i recall um so you get you multiply you know these figures together and you say so your typical kazakh family needs so many acres let's just call it acres to survive now let's multiply that by the population of this region let's build in a little buffer for any kind of population growth that might happen um and then let's subtract that. We can just subtract that from the total amount of land available in the region, and the rest can be allotted to settlers. So this is the policy. And what's significant about me for what's significant about it for me again is the kind of epistemic valences of it all. This stuff does not look uncertain anymore. Um, you know, there are statistical calculations. There are you know hundreds and hundreds of pages of very opaque tables. This does not look like 1868, 1870, where we're maybe having difficulty coming to grips with what this environment is. This looks like, no, we know, we're very sure. Um, And, you know, once that kind of certainty emerges, Kazakhs rhetorically and otherwise start having a really difficult time finding a way in.
you know, you can see that they're still invested in this old arrangement. They're citing in their petitions, they're citing, you know, in uh, the Kazakh language press, they're citing these statistical studies and saying, look, they did this wrong. You know, this is not an accurate study or other times saying, you know, no, this study was accurate and, uh, you know, therefore you took too much land. Um, so there's a, a real sense in which they still think or hope that this is a winning rhetorical strategy, but it's not anymore. So you've already mentioned um, Alton Sutton, mm-hmm. and um, I think he's a really fascinating figure mm-hmm. and a great illustration of a lot of the complexities you discuss. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about who he was and uh, his role as an imperial actor? Oh, so Alton Sutton is just the best. Um, that's enough for you, right? Um, uh, so Alton Sutton, um, Ibra, Ibra, Ibrahim, depending on like how russified you're going to make it. Um, Alton Sarin um, is this fascinating um, Kazakh, uh, born in 1841. Um, you know, raised by his grandfather, um, who's a bee, which is, you know, uh, kind of a traditional judge, a figure of, uh, you know, some authority. Um, and pretty early on in his life, Alton Sardin's grandfather packs him off to a Russian Kazakh school, a school for Kazakh boys that's just been opened up um, in Orenburg. Um, Alton Sardin goes there. He does quite well, um, and uh, makes some interesting friends while he's in Orenburg. Um, he, you know, meets um, Vasily Grigoryev, one of the most famous Orientalists um, of the uh, Russian 19th century, who Nathaniel Knight has written about, and uh, basically hangs out with Grigoryev for a while, you know, tries to uh, learn Russian words from him, um, until, you know, basically Grigoryev tells him to uh, take off. Um, it was not difficult to annoy Grigoryev, um, is my sense. Um, but he's also making friends um, with uh, this kind of famous Orthodox missionary and linguist, uh, Nikolai Ominsky. Um, and that's a correspondence that actually continues for quite a long time. And so Alton Tsarin, you know, he um, serves in administration for a couple years after he gets out of school. Um ultimately takes a post in kind of a lower-level school um, for Kazakh boys on the step. Um, on the back of this experience, um, some years later, when um, the kind of network of schools that's meant to appear um, after the provisional statute um, gets introduced, um, Ilminsky recommends his old buddy Alton Sarin as you know, a Kazakh who knows Russian and knows a thing or two about education and might actually be, uh, might have some interesting things to say about this. Um, and so Alton Sarin becomes superintendent of Kazakh schools um, in uh, uh, Russian Kazakh schools in uh, Turgai province. Um, so this is kind of in the western part of the Kazakh steppe. Um, and he comes up with some really interesting, um, this is what fascinates me about him, is that he navigates all of these different administrative worlds and who are combining different ideas about like what exactly it would mean for Kazakhs to merge with the Russian Empire. And they're combining these in different ways. So, you know, Ilminsky, for example, um, you know, he's not necessarily thinking about converting the Kazakhs, but he does think of a kind of spiritual reproachment that has to do with, um, um, it, but, but 
you know, this can be accomplished by using vernacular local languages. Um, uh, there are questions, there, there are different proposals being mooted um, while Alton Siren is serving in a district administration um, about mobile schools and the question of, you know, can you have a school that moves with Cossacks or does that just, does that undo the very civilizing thing, right? If it's moving, um, then, you know, they're not learning to sit on land and that's not what we want. Um, you know, he has contact, you know, with, in, with somebody like, you know, Grigoriev, who's one of the most virulently Islamophobic figures of his day. And so Alton Sarin, like, he kind of picks his way among these things. Um, and he winds up promoting schools where you can learn the kind of basics of Muslim catechistics in Kazakh. Um, you can uh, also learn Russian, you know, the better to be a good subject of the empire. Um, he also develops these, this kind of um, network of trade schools that he thinks should really leverage the kind of environmental possibilities of the Kazakh steppe. Um, this fits very interestingly with his arguments against um, Russian colonization and against kind of the large-scale introduction of sedentary agriculture. Um, so, I mean, th th that was a lot of kind of empirical detail, and um, I shouldn't quite give away the whole company store here. Um, there's a lot about it in the book. Um, uh, what I think is really interesting about Alton Sarin is, again, that kind of menu of choices that he's working with, um, what I, I call in the book repertoires of governance. Um, basically, you know, there's no kind of monolithic Russian empire um, in his biography, right? There's a variety of people, there's a variety of ideas, and Alton Sarin is thinking about all of them. And, you know, on the one hand, he's representing um, his, um, um, his native environment, um, he's representing his kind of, um, uh, the, the, um, the people with whom he grew up, um, he's representing that to himself and trying to think, you know, what seems to be, what seems to, what kind of arrangement would fit best what I think this is like. Then he's also representing himself at higher administrative instances as, hey, look, I know this place, I know these people, and um, of all the ideas that, you know, you guys have kind of got on the table... This is the one that I think will work. Um, and he actually does have some success getting it implemented. Um, but then, you know, one of the really interesting things about the way power works on the steppe and I think elsewhere in the Russian Empire is that it's all totally liminal, right? It works because the right kind of superiors were in the right place at the right time. One guy gets transferred. It might not work nearly as well, whether because he doesn't value local knowledge the same way or he's just got his own priorities. He can pull rank. Um, so it's a thing that illustrates both the opportunities that Kazakh intermediaries had and the kind of fragility of them. So at least in part because of this fragility that you describe and the contingent nature um, of uh, knowledge and knowledge circulation in uh, the imperial administration, the Russian Empire's rule in Central Asia culminated in what you term an epistemological failure. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, uh, in a sense, kind of how your, how your story ends? By epistemological failure, I mean, 
I guess what I'm trying to do is revel in the irony of that shift I was talking about in the way they think about um, step environments um, a few minutes earlier. Like, at the very moment the Russian Empire thinks it's got the step in its grasp, it's actually doing things, it's it's doing things that um, are putting a lot of new pressures on Kazakhs, making them perhaps more restive. And because of the kind of specific set of concerns it's developed, um, it actually has some blinders on them. They become less likely to notice this. Um, you know, they become very convinced that, uh, you know, resettlement is the way forward. Again, you get something like a million and a half settlers on the steppe by 1917. This produces tremendous pressure on uh, um, traditional uh, migration routes, the kind of resources that people might have used. Um, uh, in, um, there's also a shift in attitudes about uh, Muslims, right? Um, this has never been, you know, after the conquest of the Caucasus, um, an empire that feels especially warm, necessarily, towards its Muslim subjects. Um, after the uh, revolt of the Dukshi Ishan um, in what's today Uzbekistan, and Dijan in 1898, um, there starts this entire new effort to explain why this revolt happened and, um, uh, you know, how it might be prevented um, from happening again. Um and uh, the kind of corpus of knowledge that this gets based on is precisely made up of the most rapidly Islamophobic thinkers in the Russian Empire, most of them coming from the Kazan um, Theological um, Seminary um, and its anti-Islam division, um, you know, as it says on the tin. Um, and so, and then this circulates, right? You you can see like various district chiefs, you know, read, you know, getting these materials. This um, becomes the way to think about Muslims. Um, and you know, there's also a kind of persistent concern that you know maybe nomads aren't quite that civilizable after all. So what this means is that more settlers come to the Kazakh steppe. Um, and to Turkestan, especially to uh, um, Semirece, um, which is the region around, um, you know, today Almaty and Abishkek, um, even though um, there are some indications that this is maybe not a great idea. Um, their um, Tsarist administrators are chasing the kind of chimera, the wisp of a pan-Islamic threat to um Russian rule, um, and this, I'm thinking a lot of uh, Alexander Morrison's work on uh, information panic, and this threat was not serious to the point of almost really not existing. Um, this is where they think it's going to come from, um, and of course Kazakhs, you know, they're not, you know, maybe in the Tsarist imaginary they're not really Muslim, but they're also Muslim enough to be a threat, and they're still nomads. They're um, questionably civilizable, so. Also, um, by the time of the Third Duma, um, the steppe um, and also Turkestan failed to have even token representation in the representative organs of the Russian Empire. Um, and this, too, I'm, it's maybe not like a, a huge concern for your ordinary Kazakh, but for uh, intellectuals, kind of these you know, people who might have been these intermediaries, in fact, sometimes were intermediaries, this really rankles. This is a source of some serious 
um, consternation. It kind of drives a desire, um, at least to begin thinking about, well, I mean, they really try to think for a long time, actually, about how they can, you know, maybe get back into the Dumas. Um, but, you know, certainly some of the seeds, I think, of autonomous thinking are in this as well. So, you know, to sum it all up, because of this kind of epistemic shift, you have a resettlement policy that probably was not a very good idea. You have an idea of, like, what is actually a plausible threat um, to Russian to Tsarist rule um, that actually isn't one. And you take intermediaries who are really interested in working with Tsarist institutions and you alienate them. Um, and so um, in 1916, there's this draft order um, to bring um, the Inarodzi of Central Asia um, into service in the rear of Tsarist army for the first time. Um, this is really the match. Um, the gas that's spilling in the room is that these people, these um, Kazakhs or Kyrgyz as well, are under tremendous economic stress, um, you know, and they're very upset about it. Um, and uh, you know, they can't live as they used to. They um, some of the more spe- some of the specific instances of violence that we see uh, actually um, come in places that we know there had been conflict in previous years over limited resources. And so they revolt. Um, they revolt. Um, um, you know, the, the largest hearth of the revolt is Semirece, um, but this spreads really, you know, th- there are centers all over um, what we could call the Kazakh steppe. And so, yeah, this, I think, is epistemological failure. It was the establishment of a way of knowing things that led to consequences that were... Uh, how do I want to put this? I, because you know, we could argue all day about the kind of continuities either side of 1917. Consequences that are at least pernicious for um, the the Roman the Roman the Romanov dynasty's manifestation of rule on the steppe. Yeah, and the consequences uh, mm-hmm. of everything uh, you've just described uh, are very important to my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, So I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Ian. Uh, I hope our audience has as well. Uh, Thank you for sharing your fascinating work with us. Thank you for having me, Marisha. All right, so we just had a very fascinating conversation with Ian Campbell about his new book. Marisha, thanks for recording that interview. Yeah, it was uh, it was great to hear Ian talk about his work. Um, Ian's work is really interesting and very valuable um, as an in-depth look at these intermediary figures in an imperial context. Um, and it's very significant in illuminating this process of negotiation between the Russian imperial state and... Um, educated Kazakhs in the 19th century. And it, it's an interesting look at um, both Russian language sources, which have long been used by scholars of the Russian Empire, obviously, but also um, in that it brings in all of these uh, Kazakh language sources and looks in depth at the work of uh, and the intellectual output of um, specific uh, Kazakh figures to give us uh, an idea of uh what shaped their relationship to um, the Russian Empire, kind of their own agendas and their ideas 
for how um, for, for for what role the Russian imperial administration should play uh, in the Kazakh steppe. And this is an important historiographical development. You know, I've only had a very uh, superficial reading of the history of Russian Empire in, in the steppe in Central Asia, and it's largely been through the in the context of conquests uh, and sort of how Russia asserted itself uh, in in a frontier region. But, uh, you know, in Ian's work and some of the other work that's coming out these days on the history of the Russian Empire during this late period and, you know, what might be called the encounter with the Central Asian frontier or in other authors' accounts, you know, sort of a a Russian engagement with governing large uh, Islamic populations, Muslim populations, we see a more complex picture unfolding regarding the intertwining of of imperial and, and, and local political projects. And, you know, as we learn from the story, ultimately the Russian imperial project does not survive the First World War period. That comes through in Ian's work, and it comes through in a, a lot of the the work uh, on the Russian Empire, but that does not mean that uh, those developments did not have any more lasting uh, consequences for what, you know, r- the Russian Empire sort of gets reconstituted as the Soviet Union in the post-war period. And so, I think that naturally leads into your own work, Marcia, which we haven't really had the chance to talk about on the podcast. So, Marcia, when you mentioned the idea of interviewing Ian for the podcast, which I thought was a great idea, you you described his project as kind of the prehistory to your own project, in a way. So, I'm glad it came out first <laughs> before yours did. But um, you, you know, tell me what you may, mean by that. Tell us, tell tell our listeners just a little bit about the the dissertation project you've been working on. Um, so Ian's work is looking at uh, a subset of educated Kazakhs who uh, interacted with the Russian imperial state in uh, very meaningful and insignificant ways. And my own work uh, is looking at the first generation of Kazakhs who, after the revolution in 1917, joined the Communist Party and then made it into the party elite. And I'm interested in their backgrounds, um, their motivations, kind of who, who became a Bolshevik from among the Kazakhs and why and how, uh, what the avenues were for entry into the party elite. Um, and I'm hoping to uh, look in depth at this specific group of people in order to illuminate some of the, the processes of uh, uh, state building and also nation building in the early Soviet context, this idea of creating a Soviet Kazakh nation uh, and what that meant for um, the people involved, how their pre-revolutionary experiences shaped their post-revolutionary experiences, how their relationships uh, with each other evolved over the course of the, uh, especially the 1920s and 30s, um, though to some extent I do I do go as far as the 1960s. So while, while Ian is looking at educated Kazakhs interacting with the Russian imperial state, I'm looking at people who are in some ways very similar, but uh, I would argue in meaningful ways different in the, in the Soviet context, uh, which I think also illuminates some of the differences between uh, the Russian empire and the Soviet Union and their presence in Central Asia. And I've had the opportunity to see you present. Uh, you have a lot of biographical dimensions to the project, and I've, I've heard you talk about some of these figures, and uh, they really are not a monolithic group. Some of them that you've described, indeed, seem to have antecedents of their political 
career under the Russian Empire, while others seem to have capitalized on new opportunities uh, presented by the uh, revolution. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting um, to look at these people and to look at the early Soviet elite in Kazakhstan, especially uh, in contrast with the pre-revolutionary um, intellectual elite. So the group of people I'm focusing on um, is those Kazakhs who uh, joined the party and then made it into um, what kind of as shorthand, we can call the party bureau. Um, the actual name changed uh, over the course of the 20s and 30s, but the party bureau is kind of the main executive body uh, at the republic level in Kazakhstan. And this is a group of uh, just under 50. Uh, and so one thing I, I do in my dissertation is um, I try to look at some of the general biographical factors uh, to paint uh, a picture of uh, these kind of broad characteristics uh, in order to think about uh, precisely those questions of who became a Bolshevik and how and why. And one thing that I find really interesting, uh, though perhaps not surprising, is that um, these people were in general quite young. Um, most of them were uh, in their 20s at the time of the revolution. The youngest was uh, 19. She was one of only two women. Uh, who made it into the, into this group in the 20s and 30s. So I think that the relative youth of these officials is reflected by the fact that about 20% of them were still students in 1917 at the time of the revolution. Um, and in terms of their pre-revolutionary professions, uh, the single largest group were teachers. So these were people who either were students or had recently finished school and were working as teachers Another significant factor is party tenure. On average, their party membership dated from 1920. This is an important contrast to their non-Kazakh colleagues within the Kazakhstani party elite, uh, many of whom had extensive pre-revolutionary experience within the party, um, though invariably outside of the republic. And so while a handful of early Kazakh Bolsheviks did have experience with um, various kinds of political groupings, often youth groups, um, before the Bolsheviks seized power, their political mobilization was often a direct result of the revolution. So in fact, there was only one Kazakh who was a Bolshevik um, before 1917. And there were several who were members of other political parties. But again, because they were so young, Often their first experience of political life was within the party after the revolution. And this would suggest a pretty significant rupture caused by the revolution. But as we learned from Ian, the reassertion of uh, a sort of imperial or quasi-imperial authority uh, in Kazakhstan uh, after the revolution doesn't step into a political and social vacuum. That there was already many people who had various... Uh, engagements with the Russian imperial authority, both as intermediary, political intermediaries, but more broadly through uh, contact with uh, institutions of education, Russian language, uh, education, uh, and uh, literacy publication. And so how does that larger historical backdrop also play into um, the, fig the, the history of the figures you're looking at? So education is really the crucial factor in terms of determining um, who made it into the political elite in Kazakhstan in the 1920s and 30s. 
In many ways, this is directly related to some of the, uh, the people and the processes that Ian describes in his work. So for the Bolsheviks, when, uh, when they were establishing power in Kazakhstan, it was very important that they have Kazakhs within the structures of power um, because this republic was uh, the Kazakh Republic. They had to have Kazakhs in the party leadership because of the way their, their ideology was structured. But they were confronted uh, with a very stark reality, which was that at the time of the revolution, only about 2% of Kazakhs were literate in Russian. So the pool of people they could choose from was very, uh, very limited in that regard. So the fact that these, uh, these people uh, were educated before the revolution was kind of the key factor in determining why they could become successful within the party. And the reason they were educated at all most often stemmed from the fact that uh, in the second half of the 19th century, the Russian Empire pursued a policy of establishing schools uh, in Central Asia, in both in what's now Kazakhstan and further south in what's now Uzbekistan, for instance, uh, which was then uh, Russian Turkestan. And these schools were meant to educate a class of people who could serve the function that Ian describes, who could be translators, who could be imperial administrators, because they would be literate in Russian, uh, while at the same time being able to kind of navigate um, local society. So education was the key factor. And because of that, I, I was interested in, in thinking about why and how these people went to school, um, especially given the fact that such a small percentage of the population uh, was educated in these so-called Russian native schools. Uh, and one thing that I find really interesting is that often these were people who were already to some extent integrated with local Russian populations. Uh, so they had either personal or professional relationships or their parents had personal and professional relationships with members of the Russian settler population in Central Asia. And to some extent this is related to the fact that uh, often they lived in areas that either had Russian populations or were not too far from Russian populations. And uh, it's also to some extent tied to, uh, again, to the professions or the, the personal networks of their parents. Another thing that uh, I think is really interesting is that although these uh, future party members were all educated, uh, there is a distinct difference if you look at them in aggregate versus um, the pre-revolutionary intelligentsia. So they tended to come from uh, more modest backgrounds. With exceptions, uh, they were on the whole not from kind of the more elite groups of Kazakh pre-revolutionary society. And they were educated uh, in these Russian native schools. And sometimes a very few of them had higher education before the revolution, but most of them did not. Whereas members of the pre-revolutionary intelligentsia tended to come from more elite backgrounds, and often they were educated in Russia proper at universities. So at universities in Moscow, and in Petersburg, uh, even as far afield as Warsaw. Uh, several of them studied in Kazan. So this is a distinct difference between the pre-revolutionary elite and uh, the post-revolutionary elite. But at the same time, these people were very much products of the Russian Empire. They were educated in these Russian imperial institutions that were in theory meant to create a class of um, imperial administrators. Although they didn't really enter political life uh, until the beginning of the Soviet period, 
they were very much products of the Russian Empire. Right. So the groundwork for the formation of the social classes in part arising out of the transformations of, of the late Russian Empire. I mean, it's interesting to observe the both both the continuities as well as the, the the major shifts that occur in that transition between the Russian Empire and the formation of the Soviet Union uh, through the lens of this this very small uh, group of people that you're studying. So maybe for you know our last you know seven minutes of this conversation, maybe you could offer just a brief biographical sketch of one of the figures who you talk about who's sort of emblematic. Uh, of the phenomenon that you that's under examination in your dissertation. So in general, when you look at this group of um, Kazakhs who, who became the party elite in the early Soviet period, there are a lot of really fascinating personal stories. And that's one of the things that first drew me to this topic. One person who I think illustrates these processes very well, especially with regards to the importance of education, is a man named Oraz Jandosov. Jandosov was born in 1899 in what's now southeastern Kazakhstan. It was then part of Russian Turkestan, uh, about 70 kilometers outside of the city that was then known as Vierne and is now Almaty, mm. uh, the former capital of Kazakhstan. As with many of his colleagues, his personal and professional trajectory was profoundly shaped by his education and by extensive contact with Russians beginning in childhood. What was the nature of that contact? So Jandosov's father, Kikim, uh, lived and worked in the household of a local Cossack leader. Mm -hmm. uh, important distinction, Cossack, not Kazakh. Mm -hmm. he, he was part of a, a Russian settler population that was present in uh, Semireche, this region. And after uh, Kikim married and started a family, he maintained contact with, with this Cossack leader, who was uh, also his employer and also with other members of uh, the local Russian Cossack population, uh, who, for instance, provided the family with assistance after uh, their house burned down. So when Oraz began school in 1908 at the age of nine, he, he was sent to a preparatory course at the boys' gymnasium in Vierne. This was the result of the encouragement and the material support of the Cossack leader Malyshev, uh, for whom his father had worked, and also um, with uh, support from a Kazakh who was a local imperial administrator. Uh, and when he was in Vierne, he, he received further support from um, the family of Muhammad Jantanishpaev, who was an educated Kazakh very much in kind of the vein of the pre-revolutionary elite, uh, a graduate of uh, that same gymnasium in, in Vierne and also um, uh, the university in St. Petersburg. So it's a story that rem resembles the making of colonial elites in different settings. I'm, I'm curious at the sources for, you know, understanding this early period of his life and especially like this narrative of prominent Russian settlers or, you know, officials and, and links that community being fundamental to, you know, his his transformation and, and the beginning of what becomes a, an important political career. So, um, unfortunately, Jandosov, like many of his colleagues, was killed during the purges uh, in the late 1930s. And um, most of his personal papers were burned um, because his, his wife was very, very afraid of uh, the consequences of what would happen if those were confiscated, I think, understandably. It's actually, it's very interesting with uh, the materials on Jandosov himself. Uh, there's a rich collection of... 
I guess what you could call memoir literature written about him uh-huh. and materials that were collected by his son, who himself was a historian and uh, who solicited uh, material from people who had known his father and from relatives. So there are several accounts written um, by uh, John Dosov's wife, um, by his sister, for instance, and then people who knew him as a student in Vierne. Um, and people who worked with him later on. And there are some very charming stories. Uh, So for instance, when he was uh, a teenager uh, at the gymnasium, uh, he apparently fell in love with uh, one of the Russian girls who was uh, a student at the nearby girls' gymnasium. And um, apparently they socialized at dances, and they, they even engaged in correspondence. In addition to letters and poetry, uh, Jandosov sent her some watercolors that he drew. Uh, and these survived um, with, oh, with the girl um, to whom they were addressed. Oh, wow. Uh, and then um, they're described in, in letters written to Jandosov's son much later, decades later. Mm, wow. And so you've already foreshadowed uh, a bitter end to this story, which is uh, common to many experiences of of political figures uh, in the early Soviet Union, uh, many of the republics. So how does John Dosov get there and what does it tell us about both the formation and the fate of these early early Kazakh Bolsheviks? So uh, John Dosov is, uh, again, typical of uh, his colleagues from the party elite uh, in that he joined the party in 1918, um, when many of them did. Uh, he joined the party in Vierne, uh, and he was uh, apparently kind of politically conscious even as a student. Um, he uh, drew cartoons and wrote for a, a, a political journal that was put out by the students. And he kind of came up through the party first in Vierne, and then um, he worked for the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Turkestan, um, because this part of Kazakhstan was not yet part of Kazakhstan. Um, And he was sent to study in Moscow. Uh, But when these southern regions uh, were joined to Kazakhstan in 1924, um, he was recalled to Kazakhstan um, because of the Republic's urgent need for experienced um, party officials. And he went on to hold a range of positions within the party and the state leadership in Kazakhstan. Um, uh, he was the head of the um, National uh, Commissariat of Education, for instance. Um, he was the first director of Kazakhstan's National Library, and he also taught at the Pedagogical Institute in um, the city that had been Vierne and was by that point uh, Alma-Ata. Uh, and he, w- he was a member of Kazakhstan's Central Executive Committee from the mid-20s until the mid-1930s. Like many of his colleagues, he, he met a, a tragic fate. He was arrested in 1937 and executed in 1938. And even, even before that point, um, again, like many of his colleagues from the early Soviet elite, he had already been kind of sidelined within the party. So you have the, the general kind of union-wide uh, process of the terror, um, which uh, which resulted in the deaths of millions of people throughout the Soviet Union. Um, but you also had these internal processes in Kazakhstan, whereby um, many of the people who had been important uh, politically from the earliest days of the republic were becoming less important 
or becoming marginalized as you had um, younger people whose entire education and um, political experience took place within the context of the Soviet Union. So already in the 1920s, um, there were many controversies in Kazakhstan concerning um, uh, political groupings among the Kazakhs and uh, the this notion of uh, factionalism among the Kazakhs. Um, and there was a lot of anxiety about um, Kazakh party officials pursuing uh, agendas that were um, Kazakh agendas rather than uh, Soviet agendas. Mm. Um, and as a result of these processes already in 1930, um, there was a purge of many uh, of the pre-revolutionary figures, uh, pre-revolutionary intel intellectuals, uh, many of whom had cooperated with the Soviet state in its earlier earlier years. And uh, there was a, a displacement of uh, the uh, the earlier elite by a newer elite that was seen as kind of more reliable hmm. and more loyal. Right. So here, I mean, I wonder if you think that, you know, these figures offer even a new periodization perhaps of, uh, you know, the history of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, that they kind of sit at a particular historical moment that if it doesn't straddle the... Uh, pre-war and post-war, pre-revolution and post-revolution periods um, forge some kind of continuity that is then later lost through these later, you know, as you said, by the end of the 1930s, there's even a, new, a rise of another new political class. Yeah, I think uh, it is it is really important to uh, think about the early Soviet period in terms of continuities as, as well as ruptures. The ruptures may be more obvious um, mm -hmm. Uh, because of, uh, of course, they had a revolution, right? And there was all the uh, the subsequent violence. But it is, I think, very important to remember uh, the fact that many of the people, uh, it is, I think it is important to remember that the people who were instrumental in bringing about the revolution were ultimately products of the Russian Empire. And this is true not just in Kazakhstan, right. but also more broadly. And maybe in the case of the intermediaries of the late Russian period, uh, through their involvement in the party, they, as you said, very briefly here, and we won't have time to get into all the details, but uh, found a way of representing local political interests from within um, uh, what was then an imperial, later the Soviet Union uh, structure, uh, while still kind of being part of uh, an imperial elite. Uh, definitely. And I think that that's an important lens for looking at both uh, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, um, which are often seen in these kind of monolithic terms. I think it's it's very important to remember all of the complex processes of negotiation that went on between various groups uh, in, in both states. Right. Well, Marisha, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I guess we'll, we'll end it here and, and wish you the best of luck in finishing up that dissertation Thank and uh, the future book as well. Uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed our conversations and it's been really nice to have you on the podcast to collaborate on a couple of episodes that have expanded our geographical framing for the Ottoman History Podcast that for me as a non-specialist have been very enriching. And so, yeah, thanks again and best of luck. Thank you. For our listeners who want to find out more about our topic, we've got a bibliography on our website that pertains to both our first conversation with Ian Campbell, as well as this conversation with Maria Blackwood. 
It's also a place to leave your comments and questions and get in touch with our Ottoman History Podcast Facebook community, now over 30,000 followers, tracking our latest uh, episodes and content. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in and join us next time in another installment of Ottoman History Podcast.